Father God, please strengthen us this morning by your word. Please give us hearts that are receptive to it, that are open to you, and that are ready to change, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. A couple of weeks ago, the whole family went out to see uh, the movie, uh, The Man Who Invented Christmas at the theatres. I don't know if any of you have seen that. It wasn't as popular as Star Wars. Uh, but it's a beautiful movie um, about the life of the English author Charles Dickens during the time of his life when he's writing his most famous book, uh, A Christmas Carol. And uh, A Christmas Carol was such a cultural phenomenon in England when he wrote it uh, that it actually changed the way that the English celebrated Christmas. Hence the title of the movie, The Man Who Invented Christmas. And in the movie, the part of Dickens is played by Dan Stevens, who was Matthew Crawley in Downton Abbey. Uh, And the part of Ebenezer Scrooge is played by Christopher Plummer, who was Captain Von Trapp in The Sound of Music. So it's a great cast. Uh, And the movie dramatizes the creative process of writing the novel by bringing Dickens' fictional characters to life so that he can interact with them and have conversations with them. And it's fascinating. So Dickens modeled the character of Scrooge after some real-life cold-hearted businessmen that he met, and he wrote this to describe him. Oh, but he was a tight-fisted, hand-at-the-grindstone Scrooge, a squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner. (laughs) And then Scrooge himself, sitting there on the couch, chimes in. If I could work my will, every idiot who goes about with Merry Christmas on his lips should be boiled with his own pudding and buried with a stake of holly through his heart, he should. (laughs) So that wonderfully encapsulates the heart of Ebenezer Scrooge. And I don't know if the movie's historically accurate about this, but in the movie, Dickens doesn't ever intend to redeem the character of Scrooge. He intends for the novel to judge him and punish him. But then he finds in the process of writing the novel that it just doesn't work that way. He just can't finish it. He has a horrible case of writer's block and he has this enormous wrestling match with himself, with his own heart and conscience and with the character of Scrooge himself over the question, can people really change? Can people really change? And it ends up being Scrooge himself Uh, who demonstrates the answer in a very dramatic way. And Dickens finishes A Christmas Carol with Scrooge saving Tiny Tim's life. Scrooge is redeemed. He changes. He learns to love and be loved. And A Christmas Carol was published on December 19th, 1843. And all the copies were sold out by Christmas. And during the Christmas season that year, charitable giving in England more than doubled. So people not only found Scrooge to be believable, they even responded to his example. Now, plenty of other books and movies have wrestled with that same question of, can people really change? And I think the historical trend is that more and more modern stories increasingly answer, no, they can't. So I'm sure you're already thinking of Disney's Frozen, (laughs) where the rock troll Boulder sings, I'm not saying you can change him, because people don't really change. There you go, now you have that song in your head for the rest of the morning. You're welcome. Um, But it's a widely held opinion today that people don't really change, and therefore it's unproductive, offensive, and even abusive to ask them to. So 50 years ago, our society tried too hard 
to change people. We had a very narrow definition of what normal was, and everybody had to conform to it. And if you couldn't conform, there was therapy, or training, or drugs, or even electric shock treatment, or you were just sidelined and ignored. And I don't want to suggest that any of that was good, but what we've come to now is a strong reaction in the other direction, where we notice what kinds of idiosyncrasies and dysfunctions people have, but we don't think they can be changed. Not really. And we don't try to change them. Instead, we work on loving the person anyway and helping them to love themselves. And I think this swing is definitely an improvement on what we had before. It's kinder and it's more inclusive, but it's still not quite right. Because the Bible sides with Charles Dickens on the question of whether people can really change. It says that change is not only possible, but normal. And not only possible, but necessary. And that turns out to be really good news for us and for the whole world. So we're going to examine the life of a man who met the living God and was profoundly changed. And his story is told in Acts chapter 9. So let's look up Acts chapter 9 in the church Bibles. And first person to find it, please yell out the page number for me. 917. Thank you, Liz. Acts chapter 9 and 917. So we're looking at the story of Saul. Saul, and uh, it's one of the most famous stories of transformation in the New Testament. Because Saul's transformation marks a major turning point, not only in his, whole, in his own life, but in the whole story of Christianity. So this man, who was also known as Paul, would go on to take the message of Jesus to several countries that had never heard it before and plant dozens of churches in important cities and write almost half of the New Testament. So it's truly amazing that this man, who ended his life ready to be imprisoned and even die for the name of Jesus, was at one time in his life ready to imprison or even kill the followers of Jesus. Here in Acts chapter 9 is the event that turned Saul's life around. And there's so much to be said about it that I'll have to be selective. But I just want to draw attention to three simple things about Saul this morning. That Saul was a man who needed to listen. Saul was a man who needed to die. And Saul was a man who needed to get up. Okay, so first, Saul was a man who needed to listen. When we meet Saul in the beginning of Acts chapter 9, he's a man who's not listening, right? Luke says he was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And two words that Luke puts in that sentence show a man not listening. The first is the word breathing. Saul was breathing threats and murder against the disciples. He was muttering curses under his breath. He was snorting and raging like a rabid animal consumed with internal passion. A man so sure of his own goals and objectives that he didn't need to listen to anyone. And the other word in the sentence is the word still. Luke writes that he was still breathing threats. And that word still suggests it was an attitude that continued over a significant period of time. That even after he poured out his fury on Stephen and many other disciples in Jerusalem, it still wasn't spent. And the word still also suggests an attitude that continued in spite of other events, right? So in spite of the reasonable teaching of Peter, in spite of people being healed, in spite of the community of disciples being filled with love and worship, in spite of the evidence of the Holy Spirit, 
And in spite of the word of caution that came from Saul's own mentor, Gamaliel, back in Acts chapter 5. So remember, the Jewish leaders, Gamaliel said, should leave the disciples alone in case they be found to be opposing God. Gamaliel said that. He was Saul's mentor. But Saul ignored this and everything else. All this happened and he was still breathing threats. So he was a man who wasn't listening. And what Jesus did to him on the Damascus road forced him to listen, right? Uh, The dramatic intrusion of glory forced Saul to stop and pay attention. And then three days in total blackness with no food or water was a long time to be still and to think and pray and reassess all the evidence that he'd seen and repent and finally listen to Jesus. Because the living Jesus was speaking, was speaking all around him and was speaking to him. Jesus spoke to Saul from heaven in an audible voice that the other men with him heard. And he spoke to him again in a vision, telling him that a man called Ananias was going to come. And then he spoke to Ananias himself in another vision, telling him to go and help Saul. And finally, Jesus spoke to Saul through Ananias, telling him to be baptized and receive the Holy Spirit. So the voice of Jesus was there for Saul to hear if only he would listen. But he wasn't listening, so Jesus got Saul's attention. He took away his vision in order to give him a vision. He silenced Saul so that he could speak, and he made the man who wouldn't listen, listen. Second, Saul was a man who needed to die, but not in the way that we might think. Because Saul did set himself up as an enemy of Jesus, right? The worst kind of enemy the violent, persecuting kind. And no doubt Jesus took that personally. It's a precious part of this story that, Saul asks, that Jesus asks Saul on the road, why are you persecuting me? Did you notice that? Why are you persecuting me? Not why are you persecuting my followers, but why are you persecuting me? So Jesus was so intimately united with his people that an attack on them was an attack on him. So when the stones were flung at Stephen, Jesus felt those stones strike his own flesh. And that's precious for us to know. Whatever kind of suffering we face, it's a comfort to know that our Lord suffers alongside us. And I think that's always true, not only of persecution, but of all kinds of suffering. Jesus feels it. So Saul set himself up as an enemy of Jesus, and Jesus took that personally. But... Jesus didn't destroy Saul. He didn't just take him out. That's not his preferred way of dealing with his enemies. Instead, Jesus won Saul around. He turned a fierce enemy into a fierce ally. But nevertheless, in order to make that happen, Saul had to die. Not literally, but figuratively. He needed to go through a process of death and resurrection. And Luke sows language of dying and rising all through this story. So if you look down at chapter 9, in verse 4, Saul fell to the ground. And then in verse 8, he rose from the ground. Then he spent three days in darkness, neither eating or drinking, which is a picture of the grave. And then in verse 18, he rose and was baptized, a picture of new life. And I think in this account, Luke deliberately wants to remind us of Jonah. That's why I chose to read Jonah as our Old Testament lesson today. Because Jonah 
spent three days in the belly of the great fish, three days in blackness where he neither ate nor drank, three days where all he did was pray. And Saul spent three days in blackness where he neither ate nor drank and all he did was pray. And then in the story of Jonah, the first words that God spoke to Jonah before the fish incident were, arise and go, chapter 1, verse 2. And then in chapter 3, verse 2, God repeats those same words to Jonah after he comes out of the fish. He says, arise and go. And in Acts chapter 9, Jesus' first command to Saul in verse 6 is, rise and enter the city. And his first command to Ananias in verse 11 is, rise and go. Jonah refused to listen to God before his three days of blackness, but afterward he obeyed God and became the main prophet in the Old Testament to take God's message to Gentiles. He went to the Assyrians at Nineveh. And Saul refused to listen to God before his three days in blackness, but afterward he obeyed and became the main apostle in the New Testament who took God's message to Gentiles. So I think there's a strong connection between the two biblical characters. Jesus described his own literal death and resurrection as the sign of Jonah in Matthew chapter 12 that we read earlier. And he explained, for just as Jonah was in the belly of that great sea monster for three days and and nights, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days and nights. So because of this Old Testament connection, we recognize Saul's three days in darkness followed by restored sight as also being a kind of death and resurrection. Jonah, Jesus, and Saul all spent three days in the grave. Although only in Jesus' case was it literally a grave. So Saul was a man who needed to die, not because he was an enemy who had to be destroyed, but because he needed new life. And the path to new life goes through death. Transformation is possible. People can change. God can change them. But the way he does it is by death and resurrection. God doesn't edit. He doesn't adjust. He doesn't make minor tweaks here and there. He tears down the old and replaces it with the new. So what Jesus said to Nicodemus, he says to all of us, you must be born again. When Saul was baptized, he connected that experience very personally and intimately with Jesus' own death and resurrection. Saul had died with Jesus. The old man was dead, and the new man was now raised to life with Jesus. And Saul, as Paul, would go on to write that baptism always means that for everyone. Now third, Saul was a man who needed to get up. So we've already noticed that Jesus' first command to Saul in verse 6 is rise. And that's the first thing Saul did after the scales fell from his eyes in verse 18. He rose. He got up. Saul was a man who needed to get up. And he needed to get up in two ways. He needed to literally get up from the ground after Jesus knocked him down. But he also needed to get up and get going, right? So when Jesus tells Ananias to rise in verse 11, it's clearly this second meaning he has in mind. Get up and get going. Because Jesus had a job for him to do. And Jesus also had a job for Saul to do. He says in verse 15, He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. 
So Jesus had big plans for Saul. Saul had a time of being knocked down, of being humbled, of being brought to a kind of death. But that didn't mean his life was over. It didn't mean he was useless or condemned. Far from it. Afterward, it was time to rise. It was time to get back up again and get going serving the purposes of God. So Saul got up. He got up. And he got up changed, permanently made new, like a butterfly emerging from the chrysalis. But he wasn't a totally different person, was he? He was still recognizably the same Saul. Some things about him were changed, but other things were still the same. So here are three ways that Saul was radically changed. He had a new belief, he had a new way of behaving, and he had a new community to belong to. So he had a new belief. He now believed that Jesus was indeed alive and speaking and that he was Lord and Christ. And Saul had a new way of behaving. Saul never imprisoned or murdered anyone again. He never persecuted anyone. And on the contrary, he submitted to his own persecution. And he had a new community to belong to. So Saul joined himself to the family of the church and followed the way of Jesus in company with the disciples of Jesus. And that didn't mean turning his back on his former Jewish community, but it's clear from Acts and from his letters that the bond of Jesus was much stronger. So that's three things that changed. But Saul was still at his core the same guy, okay? So here are three important things that stayed the same. Saul's personality, his name, and his religion. Okay, a little controversial, but I'll explain those. So Saul's personality stayed the same. What we glimpse of it before Acts 9 shows a passionate man, deeply zealous, jealous for the holy name of God, studious, courageous, and dauntless. And that same man emerges in all of his letters. And connected with that, he kept his name. So it's wrong to say that Saul became Paul after he became a Christian. That's not totally unheard of for people to change their names when they turn to Jesus. And perhaps you'd say that that happened to Simon Peter or Joseph, who is also known as Barnabas. But Saul stayed Saul for several more years after Acts 9. Luke continues to refer to him as Saul all the way through until Acts chapter 13, after he's commissioned by the church at Antioch to travel with Barnabas as a missionary. Only then do we hear that he was also known as Paul. And I think it's also important to say that Saul's experience in Acts 9 didn't change his religion. Okay, so Saul changed his mind about Jesus and allowed Jesus to take his rightful seat as Messiah. But that was a seat that Saul's Judaism had already prepared for him. Saul still worshipped the God who spoke to Abraham, the God who gave the law to Moses. He still worshipped the same God with much of the same language and most of the same religious practices. And he continued to identify himself as a Jew, a Hebrew of Hebrews. So Saul started out as a brilliant, learned, passionate ambassador of God through Moses. And he became a brilliant, learned, passionate ambassador of God through Jesus and Moses. Some very important things about him were unchanged by his experience in Acts 9. And I made a big deal of saying that because some of us are afraid of the transformation, transformation of God, of the transforming power of God. We're afraid of being changed too much, of being changed too radically, of becoming unrecognizable to ourselves, of losing something that we feel is core to our identity. 
And I've certainly experienced being anxious about that. So this whole death and resurrection idea of God changing us can be scary. But God's the one who designed us. He gave us our personalities and our core identities. And he doesn't whitewash over those things when we come to him. He only strengthens those parts of us, recreates us according to his original design. And in Saul, we see that the man who got back up was recognizably the same man who was knocked down. All right, so Saul was a man who needed to listen, a man who needed to die, and a man who needed to get up. And there are lots of ways that the story of Saul is unique, and his life and calling were atypical, and we don't want to say that we're just the same as him. But I think in these three ways, we'll find lessons for ourselves from the life of Saul. I expect that at least one of these is for you, that he was a man who needed to listen, a man who needed to die, and a man who needed to get up. So are you a person who needs to listen? The living Jesus is speaking. Are you listening? Or have you tuned him out? Are you resisting his voice because you don't like what you think he's saying? Or are you deaf to him because you're like Saul, passionately and savagely devoted to your own cause? You really don't want to make God shout. You really don't want that. So in some Christian circles, we talk about a Damascus Road experience as if it's a badge of honor. We say, I grew up in a Christian home, so I never had a Damascus Road experience where God turned my life around. And then we feel a little bit sad and a little bit ashamed because our story isn't as dramatic as Saul's or as other people's we might know who came out of violent crime or drug trafficking or prostitution and they had their lives marvelously turned around, right? But friends... A Damascus Road experience is no badge of honor. It's what God has to do when people aren't listening to him. And it was no kind of pleasant experience for Saul. He went blind. He feared for his life. He didn't eat or drink for three days. It was a feeling quite a lot like death. A Damascus Road experience is not something to be longed for. It's something to be avoided if we can. And we avoid it by listening to God and responding to him when he speaks so that he doesn't have to shout. So are you a person who needs to listen or are you a person who needs to die? We all need to be changed. In some ways we'll admit to and in other ways we won't. And change is possible with God. But his method of change is death and resurrection. The old needs to die. The pattern of death and resurrection is an essential part of everyone's life with God. And it's both a macro pattern and a micro pattern. So there's one big death and resurrection we all go through where we fall into the arms of God and die to ourselves and are reborn and filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's the event that we mark with baptism. And it points ahead to our literal bodily death, which will be followed by our literal bodily resurrection. But death and resurrection is also a micro-pattern. It's a cycle that marks our daily Christian lives, putting the next broken thing to death in order to receive new life from God. And this was a particular word for me this week, especially, ironically, as I prepared this sermon. So as I was trying to write it, I found myself getting frustrated and anxious and suffering writer's block. And Sarah asked me why I was anxious. And when she asked me that, All of this nasty, evil slime bubbled up out of my heart. 
And as I was answering her question, I realized that I'd started seeking the approval of the people I served, that I was looking for praise from men rather than from God. And also I wanted by my own efforts in preaching to save people and by my own strength to build up our community. And as all this nasty slime gushed out of me, I imagined Jesus looking at me and he put his head on one side and said, Oh, so you're the saviour. <laughs> I was trying to justify myself, to justify myself through my ministry. And Sarah reminded me of Tim Keller's words when he said, the man who lives by preaching will die. And I realized that that ugly, self-seeking, self-justifying man had to die. So I brought him to God and put him to death. So I could receive from God the resurrection life he wanted for me, the freedom to be a child and a servant and a recipient of grace. So death and resurrection is a micro-pattern as well as a macro-pattern. And maybe this morning you're a person who also needs to die in one way or another. Or are you a person who needs to get up? I think Saul is really impressive in this chapter for how quickly he got up. How often do we get knocked down and stay down? We suffer setbacks and we fall into depression and despair and self-pity. And Saul could have done that too, couldn't he? He could have lay on his bed complaining that God had blinded him. He could have lay there beating himself up about how wrong he'd been about Jesus and feeling guilty for all the innocent people he persecuted. But he didn't. He got up. By getting up, he accepted the forgiveness of God as the last word on his sin. Saul didn't need to continue lamenting what God had forgiven. And by getting up, Saul accepted the righteousness of God in the way he dealt with him. That the way God had treated him was appropriate and fully deserved. And by getting up, Saul accepted the mercy of God. That he had another chance and another mission. And God wasn't done with him just because he'd blown his first chance so badly. And maybe this morning you need to follow Saul's example by getting up. Allow your season of suffering to be over. Allow the guilt to be forgiven. Allow death to give way to resurrection life. Allow the sins and mistakes you've brought to God to be truly forgiven. And accept his verdict of forgiveness as the final word on those things. Maybe Jesus is saying to you this morning, rise. And it's time for the old way of death to be over and the new way of life and service to begin. Amen.